Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today I am the one experiencing awe, that reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. I'm still trying to get my head around the story that we're going to hear today and the incredible human being behind it. Can you imagine rowing a boat by yourself across the Atlantic Ocean? That's exactly what today's guest has done. And in this episode, we're going to find out what it takes to become the kind of person capable of this sort of feat. You certainly wouldn't think about someone whose career has been dedicated to risk management and keeping people safe, but that's exactly who we're about to hear from. I have with me Tim Crockett, co-founder of Flying Frog Consultants based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Originally from Hereford, England, Tim has a strong military background that has served him well in designing and providing security and risk management solutions for a wide variety of clients, both in the private and public sectors. This includes providing services in hostile environments in Afghanistan, the Middle East, Central and West Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Amazon jungles, just to name a few. Tim has appeared on major news networks such as CNN, CBC, Fox News, and Al Jazeera America and has worked with CNN's news team to provide ongoing safety and security advice. As an experienced traveler, he's used his skills and experience to plan and help produce several television productions, including documentaries and reality shows. In a short intro, I cannot begin to scratch the surface of Tim's career, so I'm going to let him help do that for us. I am so excited for this episode. Tim, welcome to the campfire. Thanks, Scott. Welcome to be here. Oh, my goodness. There, there's so much to pack in, and I just cannot wait to share this story rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. Before we get there, can we just start with just who is Tim Crockett and, and, how, <laughs> and how in the world you have developed this adventure spirit to go on this epic adventure? Certainly. This is where my, my wife uh, calls my, my background a little bit like Forrest Gump. You get to see the president again. Um, as you can tell, um, I'm not from around these parts. I'm from the UK originally. Yeah. I'm here now in Atlanta, Georgia for just over 12, 20 years now um, and came here uh, by way of Afghanistan. So I started out um, in Hereford and grew up fairly um, regular childhood, but very blessed and privileged that my uh, father owned a coach and travel business. So mm -hmm. I had the travel bug um, and that sense of adventure from a very early age. Um, I can remember early childhood, my most school vacations, um, jumping on a, on a coach, helping like load the bags underneath and then giving out teas and coffees as we, we headed south across the English Channel and then throughout Europe and, and as far down as Yugoslavia. Um, so yes, I was very, very um, kind of privileged to, to grow up with, with that sort of 
uh, access to, to travel. And then as I um, transitioned from school and, and figuring out what I wanted to do when I, I grew up, and I'm somewhat still trying to figure that out today. But um, I, I started off my, my early career as a design draftsman and, and an engineer, I thought. I always knew I was going to join the military, always felt that I was going to join the military, but in case the military didn't suit me, I wanted a backup plan. And again, this kind of leads into a little bit more of my character. I always, I always like to have a backup plan. Um, so I thought engineering, I liked um, draftsman. I liked kind of the creativity, but the preciseness of, of being a draftsman. Um, engineering, again, that served the analytical side of my brain. But after about two and a half years, I, I, I was getting bored. Um, the, the local area and, and playing rugby on the weekend was, was not enough adventure. Um, obviously, things were getting more expensive then, and, and my, my job was, was not that well paying. So um, I decided I thought I'd, I'd join the military, and I didn't know quite which branch of the service um, I wanted to join. And then a friend of mine, who was currently serving in the Royal Marines, um, pointed me in that direction. And there was everything from, again, climbing up mountains and skiing to kind of running around in boats, kind of doing all real cool stuff. Um, but there was this particular skill set of, of a, an assault engineer and you get to build stuff and you get to blow stuff up. And I thought, that, nice. that's for me. Nice. So um, took about 13 months to, to get in. And, and then as I did, it was like duck to water. Um, it was the right environment for me. I thrived um, throughout training, thoroughly enjoyed it where most people don't. Um, joined 40 Commando, I went straight to Norway, um, skiing and again, living in the mountains for three months. Back from that, straight out to a ski instructor's course. Um, and then Gulf War One. So we went off to war as a young, kind of at the time, 18, 19 year old. Again, more adventure. It's war, yes, but it's, it's adventure when you're that age. Um, and then kind of that's where my career in the military started to, I thought, slow down. And I was looking for that next adventure. Um, and I thought initially I, I might want to go and become what they call a mountain leader. Um, and my uh, company sergeant major at the time said, hey, have you ever thought about the SBS? And I went, what's that? Um, having grown up in Hereford, and for the, those viewers or listeners that know much about the UK Special Forces, you have the SAS, um, which is the Special Air Service, which is famed with the Iranian Embassy siege um, and a number of other things, certainly uh, more modern day. But we have the water, waterborne side of that, which is the Special Boat Service, um, born in obviously uh, World War II, um, famed with raise against beaches and preparing for the landings and canoeing across the channel and that to blow up German warships and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the time I wasn't a particularly strong swimmer. I was, I was comfortable in the water, but I was like, eh, I'm not too sure about that. Um, but my, my sergeant major sort of said, I think you've got a good aptitude for this. So um, off I went um, past the initial kind of acquaint and then um, I had three months to prepare before starting and, and embarking on what turned out to be um, the, a big adventure. Uh, I was the third youngest uh, guy to, to pass that, that selection. 
and then served out the rest of my military career um, in special forces. So uh, down there on the, the south coast. And yes, we get to do all that cool stuff like jumping out of planes, running around in boats and, and doing all the all sort of cool stuff that you'd expect um, in the special forces. But that's sort of what set me up for the second half of my career. Um, yeah, if I can, can I, can I just pause us for a minute? Because it's just like there, I just think about like the things that people are capable of, right? I mean, just even up to this point, I mean, this, this is just the beginning and we're going to, we're going to continue to tell the rest of this story, but, but even kind of just le leading up to this point, I mean, I, I got to imagine that this, you know, the sense of adventure, it didn't, it wasn't just like jumping off of a cliff and all like, you're just, you know, you're, a, you're a little boy. And then all of a sudden, like you're this epic adventurer and, you know, in the SBS and, you know, how, what, how did that progression sort of happen in that like love for adventure? And, you know, was there fear? Was there doubt? Yes. I, anyone that knows me, um, if you'd speak to me, yes. Confidence, um, has not been a, a, a big factor um, consciously in my life. Now, I, one would say that perhaps I have been adventurous and I get that spirit from from my father. Again, he uh, he himself was in the British military, but only for a short period of time um, in the kind of Army Logistics Corps driving trucks. When he left, um, he actually was driving long distance trucks back and forth to the Middle East. And then transitioned from that with his brother and my grandfather into the coach industry, which up until just last year, um, we'd had for almost 80 years. So um, different cultures, different foods, like different places, like you get on a bus and you're meeting different people. All of that is, for a young five, six, seven, eight year old um, is kind of adventurous um, and then when you get off the bus at the other end you're in a whole new um, country city um, culture uh, and I think like I said back then perhaps I didn't uh, appreciate the opportunity that I had but it was certainly shaping me from a very early age um, to always try something I'm always that person that I may go to the same restaurant every week but I'll try something different on the menu every time. I won't be kind of stuck in that 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 routine. While I like routine, routine has been part of my life from uh, a young kid through the military and, and to today. It's kind of some some would say perhaps organized chaos. I I I, I don't I don't like to plan finitely. Um, there's always a little bit of of, of wiggle room there. But um, like I alluded to earlier, that having that backup plan, having um a degree of safety built in yeah. whether that's yeah. consciously or not again it comes from an early age i think i got that from my father and, and running international coach trips you have to have a certain amount of planning and uh, redundancy kind of built in otherwise you have a lot of paying customers that will get upset if you're stuck at the side of the road in the middle of the night and you're not getting to your destination to enjoy your, your vacation yeah. Well, it's interesting because in your bio, like it, it talked about how you had had this engineering job and you just kind of you weren't feeling like it was for you. And that's when you decided to go join the military. And so I was going to ask you about that. But in this conversation, it, it's clear now, like the, the military was always the goal and and the engineering job was the was the backup plan. So it was. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
I think from an early early age is I would I'd make toy guns out of broom handles and stuff I could find around the yard and tape it together and there you go. So yeah. all my adventures had that sort of military theme to it. I, I liked watching old um, military B movies and again, Guns yeah. of the Navarone and Great Escape, all those sort of movies growing up. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals? Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali in the Kingdom of Bhutan, buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and want to help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, so so take us into the next phase of the career where the uh, the safety and risk management um, business began. So, yeah, so I, I touched on that I was one of the youngest to, to pass uh, UKSF selection back in the day. Um, and I kind of got to that point where I was, again, fortunate to to progress through my military career pretty quickly um, within SF. It's a, at the time, it was a very small closed branch of the UK um, Royal Marines. So promotion is, is kind of, you hit that ceiling. Um, and I had hit that ceiling, like I said, at that 10, 12 year mark. And um, I felt, well, I'm still young enough to have a second career. I've done a lot of cool stuff. I've done everything that I, set out to do even a few things that I, I thought I wasn't going to do, but did, and then thoroughly enjoyed. And that was kind of um, being part of the training team, like training new guys coming through. Um, so I thought, well, let me come out. I'll have 12 years, happy memories, and I can then look at that second career. And that was kind of the thought process. So I applied to come out. And then in March 2001, I thought, well, I also knew that I wasn't going to do um, some jobs that you would typically transition into as in like close protection and um, that sort of stuff, which is at the time looking after very wealthy Middle Eastern uh, families mm -hmm. and you're, you're a glorified driver or, or an assistant. And I knew that wasn't going to tax my brain and, and that adventurous inquisitive side of things. So um, I thought, right, don't make a decision, give myself a good 12 months and sample what's out there, make a lot of connections and figure out what I, I have a good aptitude for and something that I'm gonna enjoy. And um, I came out, did some work with the media. It was short lived, a couple of weeks, um, running around in the, the, the jungles of the Amazon on a, on a large sailing yacht, which is pretty cool. Um, but then started looking at bigger projects, like I did a big um, kind of piracy, project off the west coast of Africa where we laid a cable, fiber optic cable from uh, Cote d'Ivoire all the way down to Gabon. And then that same cable we picked back up in the Nicobar Islands and took that cable all the way down the Malacca Straits into Singapore, which connects kind of the European markets with the Southeast Asian markets yep. and a lot of data um, goes through that pipeline. It, it, was, it was fascinating. And there was a lot of moving parts. So from a project base, it was 
giving me that bit of adventure and danger, but it was also, we had a lot of engineering and maps and satellites and charts and kind of all these different um, entities that we had to liaise with. So um, that was kind of where I was gravitating towards. And coming out of that second uh, project, the company I was working for asked if I would take over a demining operation on the Iran-Iraq border for a, a large um, seismic company. So I thought, yep, yeah, sign me up. That, that sounds exactly um, kind of what I'm after. And then obviously 9-11 happened mm. and the world changed yeah. and changed very, very rapidly. And a lot of the projects that I was looking at suddenly got mothballed because of this uncertainty in the world, um, working either directly for or with American companies. They were unsure because again, you're in um, predominantly Muslim countries or cultures. Yeah. So there was a lot of um, uncertainty and, 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 and fear. So now I've got a mortgage to pay for and I, money's not coming in. I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And um, I was in London um, actually looking after a tennis celebrity at a classic tennis tournament. And a group of people I was, I was with was kind of very plugged in with what was going on in the world. And um, he reached out and he said, hey, you've worked with the media before, haven't you? And I was like, yeah, um, loved it. Great. Um, well, I've got this project in Afghanistan. It's basically looking after a small news team. Would you be interested? I was like, yeah, I always wanted to go to Afghanistan. Obviously, checked a couple of other boxes. Um, yeah, when do we start? Ten days later, I'm in Kabul. Right. Um, that news team happened to be CNN. And um, I was there for just shy of two months and was part of the team that was responsible for getting hold of uh, bin Laden's video libraries that kind of came back and they made a lot of um, documentaries. Those um, VHS tapes went on and got passed to um, departments of the government and again, answered a lot of questions. So it was a fairly big deal. Yeah. Um, CNN itself went on to win um, a, a bunch of awards that I was named and involved with. Um, I got myself my first Peabody Award <laughs> along with the Royal Television Society Award and Eagle Award, which is part of the um, press club of uh, overseas press club of America. Um, so yeah, it was kind of exciting time. Got to meet um, a whole different level of people within that news world. Um, that's apart from kind of the news gathering element in the field. Now you've got the producers and people yeah. that put the shows together, even right up to, to senior leadership. And I think they took a liking to me. So as they started to look at what they were going to do for second Gulf War and how they were going to cover the story. Um, they reached out to the company I was working for and said, hey, what if we second Tim to come and set up an overseer and, and kind of manage all of CNN's uh, news safety prior to that, that thing? So uh, I found myself back in Atlanta and what should have been a three to six month secondment turned into about two and a half years. I met my wife here uh, and have been working with not just CNN, but most of North America's media for much of that 20 years that I've been here now. Uh, and then obviously, as people like leave news and go into production or go into um, PR or crisis management, um, I'm a known entity to them. So a good, strong referral source. Yes. Um, and the work started to flow. And I had this knack, and I think it's because of kind of my 
creative side and analytical side working in, in unison. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, had a strong aptitude of looking at risk and then figuring out how to manage that risk in order to achieve a certain aim or objective. So from a news perspective, again, news people don't want to be running around um, putting themselves at risk just right. for a story because like no story is worth their lives. Of course. But they still want the story. And those best the best stories are close to the action, not 50 miles behind the, the front lines. So a lot of the time I would come in and figure out, okay, what what are the editorial points are you after? Okay, how can we do that sort of safely? And we would develop a plan that way. And then I just took that same recipe and applied that to um, TV and media, now, whether that's a reality TV unscripted show or whether that's a, a documentary. Again, you look at those same elements, distill what's really a risk, what's just a threat, and then come up with a plan on how we can achieve their aim safely. And that's kind of what I've done now for close to, to 20 years since leaving the leaving the military is, yeah. is um, looking at a particular problem or challenge figuring out the real scary, risky pieces, and then uh, coming up with a plan to, to get to the end and, and figure it out. Yeah, so we're essentially taking dangerous situations and creating a sense of safety around them. And this is what you've been doing your entire life. And I think for the listeners, you know, we're going to talk about this race that you did across the Atlantic Ocean in a rowboat, but I think it was so important that kind of lay the context of Tim Crockett leading up to that point, because this isn't something that, you know, you just, it's not like training for a 5k, right? Where you're just gonna, you know, go out and run for a couple of weeks and then hop in a boat and go across the Atlantic ocean, right? There's, it's it's a little different. Yes. This is a Um, time of training. Yeah. But, and, and that's applied to me. There are many people and this year's race, there's something like, 43 teams that are out there currently on the Atlantic. They're, they're in probably some have just crossed the halfway mark, some are around a thousand miles in. Um, and they don't have my background, they have different backgrounds. And you have some that come from very, very ordinary backgrounds, but it shows you what you can do when you set your mind to it and prepare accordingly uh, to do so and do so safely. Yeah. So Tim, if we can like go ahead and pivot to this race. So first of all, how did you get the idea that you're going to row across the Atlantic Ocean? So again, um, go back to my military days. I reconnected with someone that I'd served with in 40 Commando and we were on the the core boxing team together. Uh, We hadn't probably spoken for, I don't know, close to 20 years, maybe more, Um, just over social media. And one afternoon we were like getting deep into kind of all the good old days and telling stories and and reminiscing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was about six weeks after that conversation, I come to find out that he'd taken his own life and had Mm -hmm. been suffering pretty badly from from post-traumatic stress. Um, Certainly I didn't pick up on it while we were on the call together. Um, A lot of his other friends that we'd served together with also weren't um, as aware um, of, of how much he was suffering. So it was at that point where it was also the 22 um, suicides a day. There were like the push-up challenge, various other things happening kind of online and around the world yeah. and trying to draw attention to, to this situation. Um, 
and I felt like I needed to do something. I didn't know what I wanted to do, um, but I knew I wasn't just going to give some money to a charity. I'm not a big fan of um, some charitable organizations, um, and that's a whole different story. Yep. Um, running a, like I said, a 5K, 10K a marathon um, wasn't really, I think, impactful enough for me. So, uh, again, fast forward perhaps another six weeks beyond that point. And I had a, another guy that I served with, um, and he was part of a team of six rowing from Portugal to Venezuela and trying to go for the world record of um, continent to continent in a, in a rowing boat. And um, just one afternoon kind of disappeared down that Google rabbit hole and came across this sport of ocean rowing and the history behind it. Um, and since leaving school, I've, I've become um, quite an avid reader and I like to dive deep into to subjects. And that's what I did with, with this ocean rowing. I, I bought every book that was available on the first crossing by um, two Norwegians that did from New York to, to Europe um, and everything in between. Um, a famous UK kind of TV personality that did it with a, uh, an Olympic rower. And that story was documented. And, and I thought, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, initially, again, the, the cautious, the, the risk manager in, inside me kind of pumped the brakes a little bit and said, well, perhaps you should do it as part of a team or as a pair. It's it kind of where my mind was going. I thought, okay, who would I want to um, attempt this with? And a couple of names popped up. I reached out to one gentleman here who is a, an avid kayaker and has 30 years worth of kind of kayaking experience i thought okay that that sounds pretty arduous and, and good preparation for um a challenge like this yeah so I, I reached out to him and he was like thought about it for all of about 10 seconds and said yeah no i'm not doing that <laughs> um and so again knowing a little kind of how i like to approach things and, and deal with things um, the decision to go and do it solo um, was a pretty quick decision. I think once I knew that my my top two contenders uh, as teammates were not interested, yeah. then it was going to be a solo effort. And as I only had about 18 months in order to prepare to get to the, the start line, um, which sounds like a lot of time, but it isn't. Um, the, the time was against me. So um, doing it solo was going to be I thought it was going to be a lot easier than, than, than most. Yeah. So um, you talked about preparation. I definitely want to talk about that just like for the listeners. So you found this race called the Talisker whiskey Atlantic challenge. And, and that right. is what you participated in. I wonder if, can you just kind of give the listener a little bit of background and context on what this race is? Um, you know, the length, how long does it take? What are the boats like? Mm -hmm. So anyone that wants to dive in deeper after listening to this, um, obviously there, there are more than one oceans. There are different routes across the ocean. So this one is a fairly uh, established um, mid-Atlantic east to west route. So it starts kind of off the coast of North Africa or Southern Europe and comes across utilizing the um, trade winds okay. <laughs> to, get, to get you to the, the Caribbean. Um, 
this race was set up in 97 by a gentleman called uh, Suchet Blythe. And back then it was, all the boats were the same. Everyone was a pairs team. Um, and you literally had to build your boat in order to, to enter the race and, and do the crossing. That's changed obviously a lot. Uh, and it has changed significantly again in the last uh, four or five years. But it is now um, sponsored by Talisker Whiskey. Uh, Atlantic Campaigns organizes the race and is a very well-run and safe um, uh, race. Um, and I think that that was important, obviously not being a rower, um, I'm comfortable in, in that sort of environment. But again, I've got, at the time I had two young kids, obviously a wife, and there is an element of, of risk involved. So yeah. you wanna minimize that. So entering a race that you know that there is, um, safety officers taking care of you and making sure that you're getting out on the boat well prepared with all the right equipment so that was kind of the the reason why i chose um the talisker and then the the established race or route is from canary islands which is just off the northwest coast of uh, of africa uh, and it's from um la gomera which is the kind of second smallest island and then 3,000 nautical miles all the way across to Antigua um, in, in the Caribbean on the sort of Windward Islands um, down there. Um, it's a race that can be entered into as a solo, like I did. And in the year that I did it, there was five of us that chose to do it solo. Um, and then everyone else was either a, a pairs boat, a trio, four or five person boat. And again, you have mixed teams, you have um, um, different styles of boats. So you have like a pure or a, an open type class, and then you have a race class. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously they have different properties in terms of what's affected by the wind. So some boats actually are more aerodynamic and they move faster and can get blown faster by the winds. Whereas others choose to go kind of the more traditional um, pure uh, style of boat um, or construction that again offers different properties for different things so everyone has their sort of subclasses within that that race itself yeah and i think like just for the listeners i know that this helped me like as soon as i googled the talisker whiskey atlantic challenge all of a sudden now there's po like it just brought context for me because i can actually see what these boats look like um and they you know they're pretty cool looking they look like they're pretty they're pretty high tech but I, i'm curious like what what kind of technology is available on the boat so again, coming back to safety. So when you think rowing boat, you're thinking kind of like fixed seats, big mm -hmm. rowing wooden oars. And, and the original crossing was done in a vessel very much like that, slightly modified um, and, and to make the crossing and, and get them safely from where they, from New York to, to Europe. Today, um, a lot of the design specs come from kind of the sailing world um, with the, the types of materials and, and the kind of the style of the boat. But there the certain properties that have to be built in. So you, the boat has to be able to self-right. So if it were to get capsized by a wave, um, it will pop back up. And this is typically done by ballast, and whether that's equipment, water, or um, built into the boat. Obviously, you have a, a heavy bottom. And then one or two cabins or compartments um, above the waterline that are sealed and have basically two big bubbles of air. So as the boat rolls over, you have the weight 
wanted to, to get to the bottom again. And then these two bubbles that want to get back up on top of the water again. So wow. that, that's one of the main design features in, in, the, um, in the boats that you see today. Um, some are more pointy, some are more torpedo shaped, some look like um, sailing boats without the mast. Um, and again, there's probably half a dozen or so different uh, boat designers out there for ocean rowing boats. So it's always best to sort of preface that way, ocean rowing boats compared to rowing boats. Sure. And then everything else you find on the boat, you would find on any ocean going vessel. Um, some of the things that are perhaps a little bit more unique um, is the, the water maker or the, the desalinating unit that's there. Cause cool, yeah. you're traveling very slow. Mm -hmm. um, you can't uh, pack a lot of water or pack any stores in, into the boat itself. So you have to be able to make your own water from, from seawater. And that's probably the most, most um, important piece of uh, equipment on, on the it, boat yeah. itself. Those are mainly um, battery operated. So you need solar cells to, to get power from the sun, store it in batteries in order to run the water maker, the navigation equipment, the radios and anything else, uh, the lights, all those sort of safety features that are on, on board the boat itself. And then you have obviously life jackets, life rafts. Um, you have what we call a sea anchor, or, um, which is basically a large parachute. So if the wind is blowing in the wrong direction, storms are happening or there's something else that requires you to kind of hold station within the water, you would deploy the, the sea anchor because at some point you'll have about five and a half miles worth of ocean underneath you. And again, you, you can't store enough um, rope or, or anchor chain on, on the boat itself course, to, yeah. to reach the bottom. So you're not going to be anchoring off or tying off on, on anything mid, yeah. uh, mid crossing. And then food, food is pretty much the only other thing that you, you have on board. You, you don't need many clothes. You don't need uh, pretty much else um, to, to row an ocean. And so do you, like, do you start the race carrying enough? Like, do you care? Do you ever get support from like a main boat in this race or is like, are you completely self-sustained the whole time? So uh, that's an important point actually. So the, any ocean crossing, but the Atlantic crossing or the, the Talisca race, they, they coined the phrase that it's the world's toughest challenge. Um, and to put that a little bit into sort of con context, the year that I rode, which was 2018, 2019. So I left in December of 2018 and finished obviously February of 2019. That um, rowing season, and again, you have to avoid yeah. hurricanes and all those sort of things. And the weather has to be set up. Um, so that rowing season, there were the five on the Talisker and I think six other independent crossings. So there was 11 of us that rode across the Atlantic that season. and. It's so obviously three or four months in duration. That same climbing season on Everest, over 800 people summited Everest. So if you think climbing Mount Everest is, is, a, is a big challenge, then again, there was 11 of us that rode across the Atlantic solo yeah. versus that um, climbed to the top of Everest. And there are more people that have been to outer space and have rowed across the Atlantic solo. Wow. Again, you kind of, it is one of those things that even though it's growing in popularity, it's, um, it, it, it is a challenge. It is a, um, not just a physical challenge, but it's more of a mental challenge and just getting to the start yeah. and then also crossing safely. So the, 
the requirements of the race um, or an independent crossing, um, yes, you have to be self-sustaining in Tyrotar. So you're not going to row off to an island and, and, and get resupplied. So you have to take everything with you. You can mm -hmm. be making your own water and you, yes, um, it's hot, humid, there's no air conditioning on board. So you're drinking a lot of water or fluids. So that's, that's going to take up a lot of it. As a solo, as part of the race, I have to take 90 days worth of uh, rations based on my calorific burn rate. Um, they have a arbitrary number, which I think is about 67 calories per kilogram of body weight. So for me, that worked out at the time around about 8,600 calories. And I rounded it up to 9,000 calories a day. That has to be on board. Most of it is uh, like expedition rations. So it's freeze dried or dehydrated. Mm -hmm. um, 20% of that has to be meals ready to eat, just in case your water maker breaks, you lose power, and you have to rehydrate the food. So obviously, to save water, you have to have 20% of those calories um, as just your regular sort of MREs. Sure. Um, and then um, basic safety equipment. All of that has to be on board like any yeah. other um, ocean-going vessel. And then... Um, that's it. When you start, you're where you go. There's some additional requirements leading up. You have to have a minimum of 100 hours uh, on the boat, 24 hours of which have to be rowing at night. I think those numbers have increased now for uh, the race today. Um, you have to have gone through a number of safety courses, so the um, normal sea survival courses, VHF courses, navigation courses. Again, all the basics that you would expect, uh, you're going to go off the coast of any giant landmass to make sure that you're you're competent and confident in, in your abilities when you get out on the water. Because once you're on the ride, it's very, very hard to get off the ride. Uh, <laughs> I think so. Uh, and, and the further you're away from land, uh, the more um, difficult that that can be. Because um, now you do have this thing called an EPIRB on board you pull that and it sends a satellite signal distress signal um, to some monitoring stations and then maritime law anything that's close and can lend assistance is then directed to to your location um if you were to do that mid-atlantic help could be two days away or it could be 10 days away it literally depends on the proximity of other ships that, that happen to be um crossing uh, the atlantic at that time so yeah um you have to be able to look after yourself for, for a sustained period of time, not only doing the challenge, but if there was a major emergency. So Tim, um, I don't recall if, if we clarified for users how, or how long you were out there. So when going into this and sort of planning, I thought there are, there are two strategies that, that rowers take when partaking in, in something like the Talisker, is you're either rowing to compete. I think you're, you want to win your race category or win the whole race, uh, break world records, that sort of stuff. Or you're rowing to complete. And that all you want to do is get from one side to the other side safely. Um, I fell into the category of I wanted to just complete. I had my purpose and mission, and that was to raise awareness for the charities um, and the cause of veterans' mental health. And I wanted to enjoy it and obviously wanted to get across safely. So that that has how I planned um, my, my, my crossing. Um, 
And I thought, right, looking and speaking to a lot of other solos in the years prior to mine, I set myself a goal of 50 days. I thought that that's achievable. That's kind of average um, based on all the variables that I, I, I could calculate for at the time. Um, in the end, it took me 63 days, two hours and 32 minutes. Uh, and a lot of that is down to um, the weather. I think in the year before my race, um, we had a lot of strong sustained winds in the right direction from start to finish. And all the world records were broken. And um, there's all these stories of uh, folks surfing down 30, 40 foot waves and mm. yeehawing it all the way across. Um, we had the complete opposite. We had three distinct periods during the crossing where there was no weather. Um, and when we talk about all of that equipment and all of that food, close to the start of the race, um, your boat or my boat weighed almost a ton in weight. So that when you don't have any wind or wave action kind of helping you across, uh, you have to row that, that weight. And, um, it's like rowing through like molasses. It, it's slow, it's uncomfortable. You're in 90, 100 degree weather, close to like 100% humidity, like I said. And there's no respite. It's not like, oh, let me just go inside my carrying and turn the, the air conditioner on. Um, the sun's beating down on you and um, you don't have the that wind to help you across. Yeah. Did you have any of those? I just had this visual when you explained about the, the 40 foot waves. Did, did you experience that, that surfing where you're kind of riding down a big wave? So, yeah, we, um, when we started, we had, uh, what, a, what looked to be real favorable weather. Um, we had strong winds the day before we were due to leave, which, um, actually prevented us from doing our kind of dress rehearsal for the start because there was a concern that when people left the marina that they wouldn't be able to get back in because the winds were, were so strong. Um, so when we set out, yeah, the winds were pointed in the right direction. They were strong and creating some, some good waves with good intervals that yes, you could surf down <laughs> the front of some of these waves. And I, I'd say for the first 24, 48 hours, um, yeah, we had waves of 20, 30 foot that um, were in the right direction. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I, I've, got, I've got video clips and pictures of me literally just sat on my rowing seat, surfing down waves while I'm eating my lunch. Um, oh, and thinking, this, this is great. Like, this is, this is not going to be hard at all. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, you fast forward a, a week and it's very, very different conditions and a very different experience. Yeah, I would love to see some of those photos. So like, you know, for again, for me and for listeners, like 63 plus 63 days and hours and, and minutes on top of that, um, you know, you're by yourself. This boat does not have a motor. You're the motor. So mm -hmm. how, like, how much of that time are you rowing? When do you sleep? And when you're sleeping, how do you maintain course and not get off course? Yeah, so th this is where we get into the real kind of, I, 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 I think it's the fun of it all. Um, if you're part of a team, um, it doesn't matter if you're a pair or part of a five-person team, typically your routine is two hours on, two hours off. And that's from start to finish, uh, which in itself can be pretty, pretty tough because two hours sustained rowing kind of speaks to itself. You're yeah. in the siege, yeah. you're, 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 you're rowing. Then 
during your off time, um, you have to clean yourself, do any maintenance on the boat, you have to eat, you have to make water, you have to do all those sort of other things. And you have to be very efficient with that because it's eating now into your rest time, your sleep time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on and off, on and off. No, doesn't change regardless of the weather or what's um, happening in and around the boat. As a solo, you have to be much more tactical in um, your approach because if you were just to do two hours on, two hours off, um, you're going to be wasting some of that better weather because um, if you're not rowing, there's no power going through the the water and you're just sat there. And whatever the the wind is doing, it's either going to be working for you or against you and you're just going to be drifting. So you have to be more tactical in if it's good weather, you you want to i certainly did um want to spend more time rowing um yeah. instead of just being sat um kind of twiddling your thumbs or resting so my days would be anywhere between 12 and 15 hours worth of rowing um sometimes that would be um seven hours non-stop um, wow. other than to like use the bathroom, eat some food, drink some water, uh, which was all done while sat in the rowing seat. Um, And I would say on average, during the daylight hours, I would try to row for three hours and rest an hour. And again, during that resting hour, I was doing maintenance on myself, on the boat, making water, eating, and those sort of things. And and my plan was to break the 24-hour period up into six four-hour blocks. So every four hours, I would eat. So I would eat much more frequently than some some teams perhaps would. Uh, I'd eat smaller meals, so it was easier to um, digest the food, like finish the whole package of food, which seems fairly simple. But when um, you're looking at keeping a space that you have to live in for 60 days, clean uh, and habitable. Uh, what you don't want is, is half-eaten food spilling over into uh, the cabin or on the deck and yeah. all the sort of things that come from come from that. So my plan was to have smaller meals so I could wash out. And again, you have to take all of your trash with you. Nothing goes over the, over the thing and you will get inspected at the start and finish of the boat. So all of this, again, takes discipline and routine to again make your time on on board uh, efficient and all that sort of does add up and accounts for a lot of hours in the day uh, just taking care of yourself and 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 everything else as well as as yeah. rowing because you've got to get across uh, yeah. in the shortest amount of time you had so yeah i i think i would on average three hours um a rowing to an hour's worth of rest during daylight hours and then at night i would sort of break that up into two hours on two hours off but the two hours off i never really slept more than an hour at a time because i had some other issues on board with the electronics and there's a piece of equipment called an ais which alerts you of other vessels in the air and it's an anti-collision um, system so uh, that wasn't working and my fear was that i would be asleep exhausted at night and i'd get run over by a big container vessel mm. because i'd slept through the alarm or the alarm wasn't working so um i was a little bit more paranoid um at night um making sure that nothing was creeping up on me so yeah uh, and that that lack of sleep um has a big impact on on everything you do yeah it's it's wild and and so the other thought for me is like when you're not rowing and when you're not focused on the direction that the boat is going what is the boat doing and how do you stay on course 
so that's where kind of my i want to shout out to my my land team um you i had what they call a weather writer um someone that's um i'm gonna say on land because actually he lives on on board a, a yacht in in greece um and his job was to kind of forecast three to five days in advance of what the weather was doing uh, and and just like a, a weather forecaster does here on on the tv kind of is directing me to be in the right spot at the right time to maximize the weather um so because of other complications with my steering system on the boat um, i had to have a following sea so i needed the the kind of the wind and the waves to be pushing almost right at kind of the back back side mm -hmm. of the boat um anything off to the side would cause me problems so when i'm not rowing and i'm kind of resting um the hope is that the the wind was was pushing me west um it may not necessarily be exactly in the direction i want to go but as long as i was heading west i was i was happy whether okay. it was north west southwest or just west um, because it meant that i was getting closer to my destination and and in reality you don't have to be specific in in where you are in a fairly sizable piece of ocean until perhaps the the last thousand miles and then you have to sort of start to come down that that funnel to make sure that you don't miss Antigua because it's quite a small island and, yeah. and you don't want to get blown past because you won't be able to row against the weather. Yeah. I mean, would something like this be possible without like GPS type navigational equipment? Could you, I mean, could you do this without that sort of equipment? Yeah. Um, and it was, that's how it was done kind of back in the day. Um, yeah. So two guys that I actually served with, um, they were part of that very first um, kind of precursor to um the Talisker back in, in, in 97 in a, in a wooden boat, like I said, when they paid their race fees and this pallet of Marine ply turned up and they literally had to assemble it and, and fix all the, the equipment together. Um, and yeah, then you had to look at, um, astral navigation using a sextant to, to take a fix. Mm. Um, uh, I think they may have had some very basic, um, tracking device but they themselves didn't have gps um, so they literally had a sextant um rulers and and a pencil and marked off on their chat chart their, their kind of fixes that they took hoping that they would um be accurate so yes it is a lot easier today with gps trackers and satellite phones and all the other kind of things that we we rely on today um but it it it's doable without it and and i think we even with all that stuff uh, i think it was the year i did or maybe the following year there was a french gentleman that actually built essentially just a large barrel and floated across the atlantic um just by use of the the, the sea currents and the wind um now he, he didn't know where he was gonna make landfall but yeah at some point um you will hopefully just get across um yes. but we want to get across in the, in the shortest amount of time and and, and get to the de desired what, what destination I'm, what i'm hearing is you don't want to try to go the other way this is this is a one-way trip it is unless you're doing the north atlantic and honestly ah. if you study the the sea currents and the prevailing winds then yes different times of the year there are um 
like we were utilizing the trade winds you've got the jet stream you've got um obviously pacific currents if you're doing the pacific you have the indian ocean so that's why you would typically leave um the canary islands or europe uh in mid to late december because that's when the weather system is starting to set up mm -hmm. it creates the trade winds that's going to bring you across um and anyone that comes from a, a yachting or sailing background um that's typically what they do they will use that to go across um in in the early part of the year yeah. and then later on when you have the kind of weather start to move back the other way in in late july august times they they sail back to europe got it makes sense so tim while you were out there what were some of the challenges that you experienced um well everybody deals with your body just kind of breaking down like 12 to 15 hours worth of rowing um you've got the heat um and the cold if the, if the weather closes in um obviously blisters soreness um your muscle weight sort of wasting away because you're only using can those muscles in, in, involved with rowing so walking like your calf muscles um waste away your, your hamstrings waste away um your body's eating itself um you've got equipment failure again the weather um you've got a certain amount of vulnerability with other marine animals uh, and wildlife um again ships and stuff that that are floating around um i didn't have that sort of encounter but many boats do have kind of encounters with aggressive marlins that attack the boat and they'll have the the marlin spike pierce the boat wow um for me um i i fared fairly well actually day two um i injured my knee i was getting out or getting into the cabin and my my foot was at a strange angle as i hit at the bottom of a wave and it kind of tweaked my knee and i probably tore some ligaments it kind of did balloon up two or three times the size um it was painful but only when you twisted the knee so the actual rowing didn't it didn't interfere with rowing so even though i had it strapped up and taking um some advil to, to deal with the swelling I, I i carried on rowing so that was kind of day two which wasn't a good start but over the course of about two weeks it settled down and didn't become a problem until later on which was kind of the second issue that i had to deal with and that was my my auto helm now you asked kind of how the boat stays on mm -hmm. on course so yes using gps and your desired direction that you want to go in um the little brain of the of the boat can use um what we call an auto helm so it steers the boat in a certain direction based on your position and your direction um most people will have two three four of these pieces of equipment on board because it's not designed for ocean rowing it's actual uh, a lightweight um, yachting piece of equipment that's being kind of re-rolled um and little electric motor and it can can burn out quite regularly so the idea is that you swap this thing out every um, three to four hours to stop it from overheating um schoolboy error i i knew that this was going to be a risk and i i only took the one thinking mm -hmm. that i could uh, either hand steer or foot steer and um when that started causing me problems i think day 12 
um, and I could go either north or south, but I couldn't go west because of this equipment kept failing. Um, I resorted to steering with my my foot, which you get the steering lines and you sort of tie them off within one of the foot plates. You un, unhook the foot plate and then you can twist the, the foot plate left and right to steer the boat. Well, that only happens on the right leg or the right foot. And that was the knee that I'd injured. And that twisting action was very, very painful. So now I had very limited ability to steer the boat. So what was perhaps less of a concern when we started was now a um, quite a major concern. And this is where I think I alluded to any one thing um, I'd prepared for. And I thought I was pretty well prepared uh, to deal with any one thing or maybe two or three, two or three things happening at the same time in a sleep deprived um, state. Yeah. But when you start stacking four or five of these things on top of each other, um, it can become quite overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and there was two or three occasions that, that I suffered in that sense where the weather was blowing me in the wrong direction. So that tripped out the, the order helm and meant that I had to go to foot steering that was problematic and I was kind of pirouetting around getting more and more frustrated and exhausted, sleep deprived, um, suffering from some food poisoning because of mm -hmm. um, some compromised um, rations that I'd eaten. And then obviously the heat, humidity and, and, and exhaustion that goes along with it. Uh, so yeah, at one point you're like, okay, how am I going to get across this ocean? I was probably about, a thousand twelve hundred miles in so not quite halfway and yeah you're by yourself and that's the other th difference between working as a team and and be, being solo because while you have the flexibility to oh if i want to row seven hours i'll row seven hours if i want to stay in bed an extra an hour i can um without obviously upsetting teammates yeah. but as a solo everything comes down to you the maintenance of the boat the preparing of food and water and rowing so when you're not quite up to it or you, you, you it was very very hard at that point to sort of figure out am i going to finish this how can i finish this um again mentally i knew that i wasn't going to give up but there's also some <laughs> practical side of this is like well you've still got to get across the ocean how are you going to do it and so at those points I'd have to call back to either my wife, my race kind of manager support, um, Ali that I think we touched on prior to the to the recording to help kind of vent and complain a little bit mm -hmm. and to, to ease that frustration, but also um, just hear someone talk through what I can't figure out on board they may have a perspective that well have you tried this have you tried that um and we really start to start to just kind of crowdsource um some of the solutions and sometimes there, there was no solution it was literally a case of being able to just step back and and reframe the problem and if i couldn't do that what's the next best thing and that was something that i that i took away from those sort of moments. It's a really important point. So you, ha you had some sort of a satellite phone or something that you were able to use to actually speak. So you did have interaction with other humans as you were out there. Even Virtually, though yes. Yeah. Um, again, great preparation for, for COVID. Um, 
I was very fortunate in the fact that one of my sponsors was a satellite company and they gave me an additional um, satellite phone. You have to have two mm-hmm. um, for race safety purposes, but I had an independent satellite phone for that. So I could call my team and my family and, and, and just chat. But I also had um, what I think is now mandatory for this year's race is a small began satellite transceiver, which meant that if the weather was favorable, I could point this at a satellite and get online. Um, I had a very sanitized, stripped down um, iPhone. And within, on good days, and within 30 seconds, I could be online um, on a Wi-Fi and I would use um, a messaging service to um, converse with my my weather writer and or race control or family and yeah send pictures back and ask questions and get questions sent to me uh, which was again very very useful because i would kind of connect maybe um four or five times a day just to download some information and or upload um questions so i did have some sort of feedback but i chose not to um interact as much as perhaps yeah. the ability that I had, because yes, it's great to speak to a loved one and, and get some words of advice and support. And, but then when you hang up the phone, it, it, it can be very much like that emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Um, and yes, obviously we, we rode through um, the Christmas period and then um, my birthday is actually um, New Year's day. So, you call up people, you get the kind of the the interaction and um, the high spirits. And then as soon as you hang up the phone, that's really when, as a solo, the loneliness would, would kick in. Um, I'm comfortable with my, like, I was always a loner growing up as a kid. Um, but when you're out there, you're it's surprising how much personal interaction that you don't get. And yes, speaking on the phone is one thing or... Um, sending messages but actually having a face-to-face conversation with another human sure. being and seeing um what what's going on in their face and the, the little kind of micro expressions and uh, the body language um, it, it's hard when you when you don't have that well it you know it's so interesting because you know part of this um whole thing was your experience with your friend and you know pts and you know mental challenges and here you are outside by yourself in the middle of the ocean and you're kind of you know experiencing some of this stuff firsthand right yeah. I mean, and and it, like i said it's i've been very fortunate in my time in the service not to have, have um be damaged uh, in that way yeah. but yes this was why i chose this as a challenge and why i then chose to do it solo because it's probably the closest you can get to perhaps someone that is suffering from some sort of mental health issue yeah. and feeling that they, they don't have anyone that they can reach out to or um, that, that they can kind of ask for help. Um, so yes, it, it's like not the same, but I felt that it was, it was yeah. a true reflection of perhaps um, what some people may be going through. What were some of your go-to tools out there to get you through those hard emotional times? We, like calling up, um, again, that, that support system, whether it was, um, family, friends and so forth, that is, is probably the, the number one go-to, um, 
having that that conversation with someone and saying i'm i'm dealing with this i need an ear um to listen to me vent or uh, express what's going on i need some interaction that that's obviously um probably the best um, solution i think everyone says you, you you need to speak up um outside of that uh, music <laughs> um, and that but it kind of um funny little twist to that i downloaded um probably 11 hours worth of music thinking that's a lot of music <laughs> um and then when you get out there and you realize my crossing took probably close to 1600 hours yeah. <laughs> and 11 hours is it's not a lot of music and there's a lot of repeat um so i, I learned some songs really really well um we joked that there was some of my my wife's playlist got onto my my phone and i i i went from not liking um country music to <laughs> tolerating it and actually liking it um some audiobooks again just to, to yeah. but also um nothingness i just switching all that off having no external um stimuli or or other than the ocean around you um now i took the picture of every sunrise and sunset um i'm not sure what i'm going to quite do with them just yet but the the seascapes like the waves the the stars or the clouds all of that stuff it's it's absolutely stunning um and then when it's when the, that's all you have in terms of um external stimulus apart from kind of the rowing and, and what you're doing which again takes up a lot of time um, this is not like some some joyride um yeah it's it's breathtaking yeah i mean i gotta believe that you had many moments of awe out there just in the silence and you know whether it was yeah. the, the, at night or during the day or yeah um too many and then like i said there's the interactions we've touched on it a couple of times the interactions with with wildlife um i didn't really see much the first two weeks um it may have been there and i i just missed it other than um some birds that would come visit um every day my first real encounter um was with an 18 foot pilot whale that came up and started to swim with the boat and, and interacted with the boat for about 45 minutes and this thing was that close that i could just reach down and, and, and touch oh it um that was just like you said awe-inspiring and then encounters with dolphins i at one point i think i had about 40 or 50 dolphins all around the boat again for close to an hour um and i'd never seen so many dolphins in the wild um like that and, and to be interacting with the boat uh, not necessarily with me because obviously i'm just on the boat but um they those were were high points because they always seem to come when you're having a, a little bit of a bad day or an arduous day and then all of a sudden dolphins would appear and, and yeah, everything up until that point just melts away and you think oh, it's just fantastic magic i mean just magic tim i could talk to you for hours <laughs> about this this is amazing um i want to fast forward to when you got to the other side when you actually got to antigua and, and uh, as part of our preparation you sent me a video um and it was basically you getting out of the boat for the first time and touching the ground yeah and uh yeah it, <laughs> so i'll back up 24 hours from from that video because it's um 
it's important to me. Like up until that point, um, I'd gone through again various different stages of the row and and again struggled with that racing and 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 not racing and kind of all the other bits and pieces. Well, about a thousand miles to go, um, about three o'clock in the morning, I crossed within half a mile of another boat. I didn't see it. Um, I saw it on the AIS. We spoke to each other on the radio. And this other boat left Lagomera 15 minutes before me, literally 2,000 miles ago. And then for the following 1,000 miles, all the way into Antigua, we were trading places back and forth. They were a pairs boat, and they were also another um, military uh, team. Um, I knew the one gentleman in. Uh, there was a little bit of kind of military service rivalry between his unit and, and and my unit. So we were having some fun with it all the way in. And when you get to within 20 miles of the finish or 20 miles of um, Antigua, you have to call into the local search and rescue. Uh, and at that point, like I said, it was the middle of the night. We closed in on um, the final destination at night. So we didn't see the island. It's pitch black. They come up on the radio and, and call in. So they're, I think, about three miles ahead of me. And I sort of thought, oh, we'll have a bit of fun. We'll see if we can chase them all the way in. Um, but then the weather and Mother Nature had uh, a different idea. So um, after the weather, this squall come over and I knocked out all my power and pushed me in a different direction, actually threw me to the to the deck and kind of got a little bit more bruised. I, I made the decision, okay, just need to calm down and, and safely get into to the, the destination here. But as the sun came up, where we were expecting the weather or the wind to be coming in sort of from or out of the, the northeast, it was coming out of the, the southeast, which meant that it was pushing our boats up against Antigua, up against the rocks, up against the cliffs. And where I was, was too north of where I had to get in and around this rocky headland to um, the finish line and um, Nelson's Dockyard, which is this kind of man-made, uh, not man-made, sorry, harbour on the southern side of the island. Yeah. Um, with my knee, with the steering problems that I had, I knew that the, the closing sort of 12 miles were going to be tough and I was going to fight all the way in. But mentally, I thought this was going to be an easy finish. I don't know why I thought that. I thought, oh, it's the last day, the last um, few miles. It would literally be just coasting into um, um, Nelson's dockyard. But the weather had other means. So I, I fought all the way in. Um, and and it, the video that you speak on where I, I get quite emotional, um, you hear a certain rasp in my voice because I'm dehydrated. I, I fought all the way in. I had to get to a, a certain point six miles from the headline just to get around it. Um, and as we started to close, um, it's the only time in, in the entire crossing that I wore a life jacket because I thought within a mile of the finish, I was going to end up on the rocks because of the, the way the, the weather was pushing us in um, in a less than ideal um, direction. So everybody inside, because it's a, a natural harbor, it's flat calm, it's beautiful, Caribbean blue skies and yet for some reason we're taking a long time to get in uh, and it's because I'm fighting not to end up on the rocks 
anyway, finally got in, crossed that finish line, um, exhausted, dehydrated. Um, and from the finish line, it's about a half a mile in to where you get off the boats actually at Nelson's dockyard. And, um, yeah, incredibly for me, it was incredibly emotional, not for just finishing 3000 miles worth of rowing and everything that I'd gone through, but because literally two hours beforehand, I thought I was going to have to jump off the boat. Um, and it was in, it was going to end up on the rocks wow. and nobody saw that. Um, the only people that kind of witnessed a little bit of the, um, what the sea was doing outside was the, um, search and rescue boat that would come in and guide you through the final, um, half a mile because of their there's this reef that kind of guards the the entrance to nelson's dockyard where or english harbor where the where the race finish is so yeah that that was tough and it made getting off the boat even more kind of exhilarating um and it took probably a good couple of hours really to sink in yeah well i mean what what did that feel like getting out like literally getting out of the boat and onto land it was it was tough because um, when you cross the finish line and you go through kind of the the little video clip that you you start to see they circle the boat and you you've got the flares so that's the actual uh, physical end of the race and then it's just a nice casual uh, row in uh, where you meet the families and the race officials well you have to row past all these super yachts and there's a flotilla of small boats people that have come out to see you so I've gone from being by myself for 63 days to all of a sudden like hundreds of people there all screaming and shouting and like hooting the horns and everything else um it could be a little bit overwhelming and yeah. i was kind of um shocked to some extent wasn't quite prepared for that um but then yeah stepping off the boat wobbling around um and then being reunited with obviously my family was was it's, it's hard to describe that feeling. It's just tremendous. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mentioned before we got started here, like when I watched that video, I think the thing that, that most struck me was, you know, the resilience, the mental toughness that you have to have to do something like this, to like row a boat across the Atlantic. I mean, like to me, you've got to be like man of steel. I mean, just bulletproof. I mean, and that, and that's, and I, that's the person that I'm talking to, but yet, in that video, when you got out of the boat, you became very emotional. And yeah, yeah. yeah. It, like I said, you're, <laughs> you're a little bit worn down after 63 days um, that we've touched on, but it, it is incredibly um, emotionally overwhelming because all these people re reunited with my, my family. Um, my parents, and that's why I kind of really got upset, is that um, my parents wanted to to a see me off from um the start and then see me come in at the finish uh, but they weren't well enough to sort of travel so my sister came out so yeah i had to give a sort of shout out to to my father where again i got my i feel i got my adventurous um spirit from and he he would have loved to have been there with me so again i got choked up kind of chatting about them and, and giving them that shout out um yeah it but it takes hours if not days to to readjust to being um back not just on dry land but like in and around people and all the sort of things that we we 
take for granted like in our everyday lives now yeah. like on board a small little rowing boat you don't have that well i think that the beautiful thing for me was you know just this idea that like even superman has emotion <laughs> you know i think i think that's an important thing it is and and we've got a um i think that's part of the problem to tie this back to why i did it with um the veterans mental health piece there's so much stigma be around not speaking up and that you are this guardian whether you're regular military or special forces that you you can't show your weaknesses and you you you've got to bury those emotions um and that's not healthy and that's probably what's led to um this epidemic of of um, mental health and again not just in the military community but but further afield to that so um i think for me that was um a little bit of acknowledgement in myself um sometimes you you don't have control of those emotions i certainly didn't have control of my emotions at at stages during the crossing and yeah at that moment that on that video clip um uh it, it almost broke through i managed to regain it a little bit but um yeah it, we, we are human at the end of the day we're flesh and blood we're all um susceptible to, to these things and we've got to embrace it and learn again how to uh, manage that in a in a positive way rather than just trying to to, to stuff that down but yeah this challenge and any um uh, ocean rowing challenge it's it's more mental than it is purely physical yes there's some physicality to it um i would say that it's probably 75 percent mental uh, and that's in terms of the preparation and then adapting to life on a small boat on a big ocean and then that loneliness and the isolation and being sort of self-sufficient and all the anxieties and, and frustrations that, that come with that. It, it, much more than, yeah, jumping on a, on a rowing machine and rowing for 15 hours is tough, but yeah. do that without that support and that, that, that knowing that you can get off the ride. Yeah, yeah. it's tough. That's incredibly powerful. So the last thing about that video that when you, when you finished the race was, you, I'm so glad when I saw you on, on camera. So for those of you that aren't listening in this video, Tim is wearing his shirt that says tame the Kraken and he's wearing it for us today. For those of you that are watching on YouTube, you can see his shirt. Um, but if you're not tame the Kraken. So if you've seen clash of the Titans, you know about the Kraken, but Tim, tell us, tell us the, the meaning of the shirt for you. So the, the Kraken actually can be traced back to a Norse um, kind of mythical creature, sea creature, obviously that can drag um, seafarers and whole ships down to the depths of, uh, of the ocean. Um, very seen as a very dark, um, ominous creature. And that was my analogy for mental health um, mm -hmm. and, and, and post-traumatic stress. So the idea of tame the Kraken is, is taking that and being able to acknowledge it and then, again, tame it right so it, it's it's not a it's not going to kind of grow into something that's debilitating and, and could lead to harm so yeah tame the kraken is um was the the theme of the whole campaign in terms of um raising awareness and and, hope, and some funds for for veterans mental health yeah it's it's awesome and i think it's important to acknowledge and think you said it but just to kind of repeat like we're taming the kraken we're not trying to destroy the kraken we're taming the kraken yeah exactly and again it, some uh norse legend says that obviously you, you cut off a leg of of the kraken and, and it will grow back so there's this 
being able to renew and 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 regrow um so just because something bad has happened to you it it, it shouldn't destroy you it's it's taking what's happened to me and turning around it's what's happened for me so you can grow and become more resilient and stronger from it yeah i love that so much i i want one thing i want to just um mention here is um, you know, I, I've done some, some kind of research and study on the concept of flow, like this idea of like getting in the zone and just kind of, you know, really like living, living in that place of just, you know, really feeling fully alive, fully conscious. And, and one of the triggers of this idea of flow is something called the challenge skills ratio. And it's so this, it's this idea of like balancing your skill set with a level of challenge. And this is what I see in, in this adventure that you've taken. You had this whole lifetime to develop these skills. And so like for, I think for a lot of people, they look at what you've done and said like, oh my gosh, like I could never do that. And you know what? For a lot of people probably couldn't if you don't have the right level of skills. But like for you, it seems like this was definitely a challenge, but you'd also been preparing for it for your whole life. So you kind of you know, I had figured out a way to sort of match the challenge with your skills versus, and I guess that my point here is that, you know, again, you know, the average person doesn't just like decide one day watching TV that they're just going to jump in this boat and go do this, but you found this way to like match your, your, the, the level of challenge with your skill set. And I just, so I, I, you know, I, and my, what I usually finish these podcasts with is what are your, what's your advice for people? Um, that are looking to maybe level up their challenge or, you know, cross that threshold into adventure. Um, and I bring up the challenge skills ratio because I think that plays a part in this. Yeah. And it's, I would say that you, you've got to start and look at um, yourself. Like, what are you comfortable? I, I talk a lot about people's risk tolerance. Some people are, are have a greater risk tolerance than others, which will, impact on everything they do from choosing a vacation to the careers that they follow to what they do within those careers some people are risk takers and they'll take um bigger risks based on again their their appetite for risk so i think that's an important starting point so yeah if you have never run a marathon in your life or find it difficult to to run a, a small race going and doing like a race across the Death Valley is probably not a good starting point. Um, I had never rode um, prior to um, undertaking this. However, like you spoke to, I was comfortable in the environment. I was used to being on the water, in the water, under the water, um, cold, wet, miserable, all the sort of factors that can be quite off-putting to some people. I'd already experienced that in various different forms leading up to this. So again, that didn't even register for me when um, I decided to do this challenge. It was more about like, well, how am I going to get the the money and the logistics to to actually get to the start line and having to interact with people and, and ask for money and ask for help? That that was like pretty daunting to me. So yeah, it, it's 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 finding kind of yeah that skills perspective okay this is what i i'm i'm comfortable and competent in doing and then in taking that a little bit further in in whatever it is you're you're good at whether it's cycling or like didn't see i use the word good very relatively um again from a safety perspective if you're a, an average climber soloing al cap is again probably not the first step 
but building up to that if that is something that you want to set your sight on but not be scared of um picking a a, a fairly scary audacious um sort of goal and it may take 18 months it may take 18 years um but if it's something that you 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 feel that you want to do then it's important that you pursue it yeah amazing yeah thank you for that so um tim you know your whole life story this this row across the atlantic but your entire life story it's just it's epic and if they haven't already hollywood they probably already know about you <laughs> and uh, they're probably already planning the, the movie about your life. But what I want to know is when they do make the movie about your life, who's going to be the actor that's going to play you? Um, so I, I thought about this a little while. I'd say Jason Statham nice. is probably um, nice. because we have a similar hairline. I love um, it. <laughs> he, again, anyone that knows his background, he's um, a diver, uh, pool um, obviously athletic does his own sort of stunt. So I think that he's probably, he's molded in the right, um, corner. Um, or maybe Brad Pitt, but you'd have, have to shave his head. So I'm not sure that would, <laughs> that would come across. I love it. And what's your movie going to be called? Um, it's, everyone says I need to write a book as well. And I would, I would, I've chosen the same title close to it that, that, we've got written down somewhere which is my extraordinary ordinary life Ooh, i like that my extraordinary uh, ordinary life yes because yeah. to the external world like everyone would say i've had uh, quite an exciting um life up to this point and um, but for me like i said it's been work it's been play it's been something that i haven't really done out of the ordinary until i rode across the ocean that's unbelievable. That's a great title. So, um, Tim, if people want to find out more about you or the the race across the Atlantic, what, what's the best way for them to do that? I'd, I'd say go to um, the campaign Instagram, which is at Tame the Kraken. Um, that has highlights and all the um, images leading up through my training and, and during the crossing. Um, that probably tells the, the better story. Uh, the, the website's um no longer in in use uh up until this point um but you can also email me which is tame the kraken at gmail.com i'm happy to answer any sort of questions or message me through social media again and we're on all the other platforms as well but i'd say instagram's the easier one to, to get a hold of us awesome well thank you tim thank you so much for your time today this has been incredibly inspiring, such an amazing conversation. And for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Tim's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thanks for listening. Tim, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed it.